Sometimes tradition is very good when it comes upon principles and situations that are of value. And sometimes tradition is there just because that's all the way we've always done it. So one of the examples that you've probably heard this story before is about the, the woman who was cooking a ham for her dinner for her family was going to cut the end off the ham. And the husband said, what are you doing that for? She goes, well, that's the way my mom always did it and made the ham better. And the husband goes, I don't think so. Maybe you should call your mom. And so she called the mom and said, Mom, you always cut the ham off, right? Because that made it better when you cooked it. She goes, no, I did that because I didn't have a big enough pan for the ham. So sometimes we do things thinking that it's a good thing, and it's just something. There's another um, musical. Uh, some people really like it. I'm not big on musicals. Uh, so I've watched it once or twice. And uh, the theme of it was tradition. And one of the major songs in it was tradition. And about the only other than that song and about somewhere the Bible says something about a chicken, uh, the only other thing that I remember about the story, which is what maybe some people don't, was that I think the guy's name was Tivio. If I'm wrong, I'm sorry, but... Um, one of his daughters wants to get married to an individual, but it's not according to his principles. But he recants and lets her get married. And then another daughter, the same thing, but a different principle, and recants. And finally, the third daughter wants to marry somebody outside the faith. And he recants. And in essence, he has gone from tradition to having surrendered all of his principles. Why do I say this? Because we're going to come upon some things that are tradition in the church. One of those things is tradition in the church is that Jesus died on Friday and we call it Good Friday. I don't think the scriptures justify that at all. The reason, just like the hand being cut off, was that there were those who read the scriptures that talked about the reason that they could not go and attend the body of Jesus was that the day after was a Sabbath and therefore they couldn't go. So they go, aha, that means it was on Saturday that they couldn't go. No, if you look at the scriptures, basically Passover was a Sabbath. Unleavened bread was a Sabbath. And Saturday was a Sabbath, and therefore the, the day after all of those was Sunday, and they could go to the tomb. And so instead of trying to make all these pretzels in our logic, how we get three days out of a death on Friday and a resurrection on Sunday, we try to maintain that rather than say, what does the scriptures actually say, and then go from there. And so... Uh, Again, one of the traditions is the church frequently calls the Resurrection Sunday Easter. And those who are familiar with the term Easter are uncomfortable with that. So we try to come up with other explanations and we'll say Resurrection Sunday, which is it's a, it's a good name. But the biblical name is First Fruits. 
And the sad thing is even well-versed theologians don't seem to even get that. I, there's an article in a magazine in the back and has a nice little article about first fruits. Except he never discusses that Jesus is the first fruits, that he rose again on first fruits. And so he missed the great value of what was happening because even though we may be well versed in the scriptures, we're not well versed in the scriptures. And so in a little bit, you'll see why I'm bringing this up to cause you to think. I'm not saying that you must think like me, but I want you to think rather than saying, oh, this is the way people who seem to know more than me interpret things, and therefore they must be right. And I want you to read the scriptures for yourselves so that when we all get to heaven and the Lord says, well, why did you do X? I don't want you to say, well, because Pastor Joe said it was a good idea. I don't want that responsibility, okay? I want you to see the scriptures and say, when the Lord says, why'd you do that? Well, I first heard it from Pastor Joe, but I started examining it. You know, I kind of thought he was right. Or I thought he was an idiot and I discounted it. What, whatever it may be. And so you're going to see why I'm bringing this up towards the end of the message. But this message today has great value, both in a warning to us and a warning to us as to what to do. And so in Matthew 26, starting with verse 6, it says, Now when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leopard, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial. And I'm going to stop there. The reason I'm going to stop there is I'm going to use John, uh, John chapter 12 as the explanation that we're going to go through. Now there is controversy, debate, division, discussion, that what is talked about here in Matthew is not the same incident that's talked about in John. I see some similarities. I see some whatever. Uh, and so I don't know the answer. I don't know if it was two events uh, very close to this time, and one chose to, to discuss it, even though it had a lot of the same elements as the other, or that they discussed it, leaving certain things out, or that it happened at a different time, but but again, in, in, in the Jewish idea, it is not chronology, but themes. And so there may be certain explanations, but I want you to see. So we're going to look at John chapter 12 for the, um, the events that take place. So Jesus is in Bethany. He's very close to Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, he's going to enter Jerusalem here from Bethany to go to Jerusalem. And so it's, if you will, his last stop before he gets to Jerusalem. In chapter 12 of John, it says this, that Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Now, in Matthew's account, he's having dinner or a supper at Simon's house, he may be Simon the leper, he may be somebody else. In John, everybody says he's probably having supper at Lazarus and Martha and Mary's home. I don't think you can determine from this which home it is, so it very well may be in Simon's home. 
This is where I want to say six days before the Passover. So if you assume that the Passover is on Friday, then six days would be Saturday. If it's six days before Saturday, six days before Passover, it's Saturday. Therefore, there's a whole lot of work going on on a Sabbath. But maybe that's okay. But then it fits, if you will, for the what we all call the triumphal entry on Sunday. However, this is where we get a little challenged. If Passover was on Thursday, then six days before Thursday would be Friday. And it says the next day he enters Jerusalem. I'll let you figure that out. I will tell you, I think there's much more support for Passover being on Thursday. And also, therefore, if this is on Friday, nobody has to worry about whether they're violating the Sabbath or not, and nobody's going to complain about all the work going on. So they made a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. So in this supper, Martha is always doing what Martha always does. She's working hard. And God bless her, because we need people who are working hard. And then we have Lazarus, who's the, who's the star. I mean, Jesus rose him from the dead. So it's cool. So let's, let's invite Lazarus, because he's cool. And we all want to see Lazarus, because he was dead, and now he's alive. And so much so, he's eating at the table. So that's cool. So let's get Lazarus. But, but Martha, I said, God bless her. Martha is just working, serving the tables. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume, perfume of pure nard. Now, in order to get this particular perfume, it is believed that it's come from India, which means that it had to travel quite a distance. And you know... When things have to travel quite a distance, that adds cost. So when you have an expensive perfume that now has to travel a great distance, it adds great cost. And so this is a very expensive perfume. People would, would acquire these things not only because they like the smell, but they didn't have financial institutions like we did or do. So um, there wasn't uh, governmental insurance that if the bank went BK that you'd lo you wouldn't lose your money. There weren't 401ks and IRAs and all that. So oftentimes, people would acquire expensive items that were easy to carry. So for instance, gold is heavy. Silver is heavy. So a lot of people who are uh, preppers, if you will, will try to get diamonds because they're very expensive, but you can carry a whole lot of money in your pocket. In kind of the same way, this, this is a perfume that has great value and for what it is, but it also can be considered an investment. And so there's this very costly perfume of pure nard. 
and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. And so we can see in these short statements that Mary, when she's doing this, isn't being skimpy on what she's doing to anoint Jesus. She's using enough of it that the entire house smells of the perfume. Now, some perfumes are really strong, and you don't need much of it to cause you. The other day I was, I went somewhere and didn't have to have a mask. I don't know where it was. But all of a sudden I started sneezing. And I, it, my first thought was, everybody's going to think I'm sick. Because, you know, you're not supposed to sneeze now. You're not supposed to cough. Because that means you have some terrible disease you're going to give everybody. And then I, I smelled just a whiff of perfume. And I go, ha, I'm allergic to that perfume. And so here's this whole house filled, not with just a little scent, but filled the house with this fragrance. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples who was intending to betray him, said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? So he objects. Because this perfume could have been sold for at least three. And in that day, you, you can convert that to a year's wages. So he said, this is expensive. Why wasn't it sold instead of using it to anoint Jesus' feet? Now, I won't go there, but in Matthew, back in the same, it says that the other disciples became indignant too. So Judas's criticism of Mary's gift causes others to become indignant as well, which means sometimes it's very easy to get other people to be critical of other people. So here's the first thing, and, and so let, let me finish first. And so he says, and now he said this, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief, and as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. So he had his own agenda, and his own agenda was, if we'd have got 300 denarii, I could have taken a little more, and I could have been better off. So he wasn't concerned about the poor. And so... The warning here, first of all, is that when you love Jesus, there will be people who are critical of you for demonstrating your love of Jesus. I'll give you an example. We have, we uh, live streamed this our services, we put them on YouTube and Facebook, Periscope, and other things. And one of the responses that we got in our thing was, well, do you help the poor? Wasn't that we were doing a good or bad job of what we're doing in the ministry. It was, well, are you helping the poor? Now, if her question was, and it was not, 
Do you help the poor? Can I help you also? Or if you don't help the poor, can I volunteer to help it? No, no. It was given for, to us to criticize us because we don't do enough. We don't do what she thinks is important. And apparently what she thought was important is feeding the poor. And so we did respond, but then I said, yeah, is that we join with another church to uh, give out food on particular days, and we do have a benevolence, whatever. But then, I, like I said, she, she doesn't really want to know this information. She wants simply to criticize us for doing what we do. And so when you are demonstrating your love for Jesus, don't be shocked if people criticize you for what you do for Jesus. Well, you know, you shouldn't do it that way. And you know, this criticism isn't unique to Jesus' time. David, king, was bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem after it had been out in somebody else's presence for a while, and they discovered that that person who was housing the Ark of the Covenant was being really blessed. So David goes, you know, maybe we ought to have it in Jerusalem so we can be really blessed. So as they're bringing the Ark back, they avoid the first mistake, and they carry it the way they're supposed to. But every few steps they carry it, then they stop, and then they offer sacrifice. And then they carry it a few more steps, and they offer sacrifice. And David is so joyful at the Ark of the Covenant coming home to Jerusalem that he's dancing. And he's excited, and he's carrying on in joy that the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God, is coming to Jerusalem. His own wife criticizes him for not acting responsible and dignified. And you will see, when you demonstrate your love for Jesus, sometimes it can be emotional. Sometimes it can, can break forth in song or dance or whatever it might be. And others might be saying, well, that's not real dignified. And you'll be criticized. And you know, it's true. For the longest time, we Baptists, because we didn't want to be considered Pentecostal, we would sing, but don't let a hand go. Because if you let a hand go up, they'll think you're Pentecostal. If they think you're Pentecostal, they're going to want to put their hand over your mouth because you might break out in tongues. And so we sit with our hands to our sides because we don't want anybody to think we're Pentecostal. And so we are robbed of the joy of expressing our love for Jesus because of what others might think. Don't let them do that not your job to monitor the gift from somebody else. You see, it was Mary who decided to offer this costly perfume for Jesus because in her love for him and in her appreciation for him, because Jesus was her friend. Jesus was being her Lord. Jesus had given her love and redemption and it raised her brother from the dead. What would you give if Jesus did that for you? Maybe you would make a pretty big offering. 
Let me tell you a little secret. Jesus is your friend. Jesus did redeem you. Jesus does love you. And Jesus has sacrificed himself and will raise you from the dead. So let's not worry about what the type of offering it is and whether you give a big or a small offering and I give a big or a small offering. It is of none of your business what the offering is that the other gives. It's kind of the reverse, if you will, when we saw a few weeks ago when Jesus said that the master gave a certain amount of money to people and some of them made more and some of them made less and whatever. Whatever God gave you and you returned that to God, that's between you and God. That is not between you and me. So number one, we should not be critical of others because we're not their master, God is. And we can't tell in their heart why it is that they're giving the gift that they're giving because of the love that they're expressing. And likewise, we should not let other people be critical of our praise and adoration and love of God. And even if they criticize us, so what? They're not our master. Therefore, verse 7, Jesus said, let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Notice Jesus doesn't say, oh, you know, you guys are right. We could do so much more. He's going, there is a reason she's doing this. She's either understanding or doing it without understanding that Jesus is going to be buried soon. And she's offering this and that. And then he says something that kind of cuts them to the quick. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. You want to help the poor? You can do that 365 days a year, 24 hours a day. As a matter of fact, the need is so great, sometimes it overwhelms us because what can we do to help the poor? Because there's so many. Which causes me to remember the story that my wife likes about how all these starfish got placed up upon the sand of the seashore, but couldn't get back because it was dry. And this little child was taking a starfish and throwing it back into the water. An adult, again, typical, can never do anything, says, you don't expect to save all of them, do you? The child went down, picked up one more, threw it back in the water, I saved that one. And so oftentimes we think that the problem is so big, we do nothing rather than doing what we can. Yeah, you cannot feed the, all the poor. You save that one. You save that one. I wonder, after Jesus' resurrection, or maybe even during his burial, How the disciples might have thought, 
What more could I have done for him when I was with him? Maybe I could have gone and got him water when he was thirsty, like we did at the woman at the well. Maybe I could have got him food before he asked for it to show how much I appreciated his love and his ministry and his teaching. Maybe I should have been like Mary who anointed him or like Mary who previously had wept and washed his feet with her tears. What could I have done when Jesus here. As Jesus said, in essence, there's six more days that he's going to be here. But there will be the poor after that, and after that, and even some 2,000 years later. The large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there. And they came not for Jesus' sake only, but they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Like I said, he's a celebrity. Let's go see Lazarus. It's cool. Is there any side effects to being dead? That's pretty cool. Let's go see him. Let's go see Jesus, and let's go see Lazarus, which I always think is interesting. Most of us, I guess, would rather see the works of some great painter than to have the conversation with that great painter. So here the people are coming to see the works of Jesus almost as much or more than Jesus himself. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also because on account of him, Many of the Jews were going away, and they were believing in Jesus. You see, Lazarus was more, if you will, than just a celebrity. Lazarus was proof that Jesus raised him from the dead. Oh, those people who he raised the, the son of the widow, they're up somewhere else. The woman who had been bleeding for 12 years, she was somewhere else. The young child who was 12 years old that he raised from the dead was somewhere else. But Lazarus is in Bethany, just a few miles from Jerusalem. And people were believing in Jesus. And notice they didn't say believing in the works of Jesus, believing in him. And the religious establishment could have none of it. Notice they don't care what the truth is. Notice they don't care whether Jesus is the Son of God. Notice they don't care whether he is the Messiah. They only care that people are going after him rather than after them. Which is another warning that we should in our ministry, and in our life. We should be more concerned that people are going after Jesus than after us. So they criticize us. Okay. They criticize Jesus. 
So people want to do us harm. Okay, they did for Jesus. They planned not only to put Jesus to death, but Lazarus to death so that it would stop the belief. But just as Lazarus was raised from the dead and caused people to believe, when Jesus rises from the dead, they're not going to be able to stop the belief. For you see, throughout history, there are those who have some really good philosophies and those who have some really terrible philosophies. There are some who have some spiritual wisdom and there are others who are so much in the dark they have no clue. We don't pursue wisdom. We pursue Christ. Because he is the risen Lord and Savior. And so if he is that, and he is, then we need to express to him our love for him, regardless of criticism. And if he is the Lord, and he is, then when others offer their gifts of love, we are not to say a word against them because they're not our employees or slaves. They're Jesus. And it's between Jesus and them. You see, Mary gave a truly great gift of worship. She offered perfume as if for burial. Not that it could be used again or recycled. Or that others might then do the same for her. Her gift was selfless. And the only thing we should consider when we give our gifts to Christ, is it selfless or is it for something? And if you watch many of the TV evangelists and preachers, they will say, well, if you'll send X amount of money to me, God will bless you and give you more. That is not a selfless gift. That is a selfish gift. Mary's, because she loved Jesus for who he was and what he did, offer him something that could not be repaid didn't expect repayment. And our gift of love to Christ should be the same. And all God's people said,